Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 243. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, pleased to be joined by black belt and friend, David Figueroa Martinez. How's it going, David? Pretty good. Thank you for having me. I'm excited and nervous. (laughs) Well, I am excited and also nervous too. But why don't you tell me a little bit about who you are and, hey, why you're nervous at the same time. But yeah, I know you've been a big supporter of ours for a long time. Um, But for those who maybe aren't familiar with you or who aren't following you on social, why don't you give yourself a quick intro? So I'm a 12-year veteran of jiu-jitsu. I've been training for the last, uh, I would say, eight or nine years out of Gracie San Diego and Gracie La Mesa. I've been teaching roughly, at least in some capacity, since I was a late blue belt. I have taught everything from three to seven-year-olds, the juniors class, adults fundamentals, and advanced. I currently teach three, three mornings out of the week in uh, Gracie La Mesa and their 5 a.m. class, uh, which is a whole nother adventure. Teaching people at 5 a.m. is a whole nother beast, which I'm really excited about. I've been doing that for about a year and a half. I got my black belt two years ago, and I've just I've kind of just moved into a lot of leadership and proper ways to teach and just how to mentor, and that's kind of been my focal point for the last couple of years. Yep, awesome, amazing, amazing, and I, I believe you've been uh, friends and acquaintances with a lot of the people we've had on the pod too. You seem like a pretty well connected guy. I personally quite enjoy your social media, but something that I know that you are quite passionate about and you wanted to talk about today, and in fact, a topic we've wanted to discuss for a while, is the idea of using jujitsu as a tool to overcome trauma. Am I correct? I would just love to explore this a little bit more and maybe understand your experience with this very particular space. Yes, sir. So my childhood, my mom and dad both met in Puerto Rico. Uh, They got married shortly after they had me. My mom came out of poverty, like just the worst kind. Both parents were abusive. So when she had us, she was, she had a lot of that, a lot of anger, a lot of short temperedness. Uh, She would snap, she would hit us. And we're not talking like, uh, like spankings, like she would, she would really hit us. Uh, Thankfully, uh, she turned her life around and she became a completely different person the second half of my childhood. But the scars of that kind of uh, had their way with my personality and how I viewed the world in a lot of ways. Uh, So some people, they become uh, like fixers. They want to fix everything in the household so the tension doesn't rise. With me, I became really introverted. I became really withdrawn. I didn't want to be seen. 
I didn't want to be noticed. In my household at that time, if you were noticed, it was typically because you did something wrong. If you did something wrong, chances are you were going to get hit. So my coping mechanism became being hyper aware, paying attention to everything that was happening around me, uh, her uh, facial expressions, her tone of voice, were things going okay in the house? Uh, the, the look in her eye, like you became very hyper aware of everything that was going around you. So that ended up becoming my coping mechanism. And it, of course, traversed into adulthood and who I ended up being a lot of, in a lot of ways. It took me a long time to really understand why I was the way I was. I tend to be, again, very introverted. I don't deal well with crowds necessarily. I don't deal well with spaces where I am the focal point. So it took me a lot of like introspection and study and uh, taking mental inventory of who I was and why I was a certain way for me to finally start breaking past that. But it took a lot of work. And that's been part of why I'm kind of studying leadership, because I feel with jujitsu, it's a it's a huge part of why people get into jujitsu. Some people love MMA, some people love UFC, or maybe they got into it when they were in the military or whatever that might be. But there's a big percentage of people who come through those doors who come in because they were victims of domestic violence, because they were victims of some kind of violent crime, child abuse, or bullying. So I want to be more of a voice in that sense and maybe hopefully help the culture forward and speeding it along in, in how we approach these people and how we approach people that come through that door who may not tell us that that's what they're going through. But I want us to be better in that light. Makes sense. Makes sense. Now, I, I agree with you completely. I think a lot of people, they'll get into jujitsu for a variety of reasons. One of them being, of course, they're trying to overcome some past trauma. Could be, of course, additionally, that maybe they want to be a competitor. Maybe they want to get in shape. They want to learn to defend themselves. But ultimately, the one thing that pretty much everyone's going to get out of jujitsu, um, if they stick with it, is that that built confidence, that built discipline. You know, not not all of us. And in fact, hopefully most of us will never have to use jujitsu to actually defend ourselves. But even if you train there are, at least from my experience, these auxiliary benefits that you can get. Now, I would caveat this, of course, with the statement that jujitsu is not a substitute for therapy or professional help. Um, you often hear people say things like jujitsu is therapy. I, I wouldn't go that far, right? Jujitsu may have therapeutic benefits, but I would never suggest to anyone that they use it as a replacement for therapy or doctor prescribed assistance. But beyond that, I mean, anecdotally speaking, <laughs> there's a lot of people who will tell you that jujitsu completely changed their life for the positive. Um, and I'd want to hear you unpack this. If you agree with that assessment, um, if you think it's overblown, um, and if you do agree with it, I would want to know maybe what your experiences are and how you see jujitsu helping people overcome this kind of past trauma. So for me, I, I completely agree. I don't think anyone should say that it's their therapy necessarily. Uh, if you actually need therapy, you should go get professional help. But for me, it allowed me, one, to calm my mind. Uh, because you become hyper-aware, everything that's around you, you're taking in all these details that it becomes exhausting when I'm going out into like public setting. 
But when I'm in jujitsu and I'm training, actually actively rolling, my mind kind of not completely shuts down, but it narrows the field of what I'm taking in because it's more of a safe spot. I can train, I can roll. I don't have to think about any problems. I don't have to, we're not uh, necessarily debating or arguing merits of anything. It's just two people rolling and trying to get the better of the other that my mind kind of goes into more of a peaceful mode. And I love that about it. That was one of the things that addicted me to jiu-jitsu. It allowed me to just be in the moment without all the other noise. On top of that, it gave me this sense of confidence that I was able to just take on other endeavors like this, for example. I, would have no, I don't think I would have ever done this five, eight years ago. I'm in a place where I'm teaching. I don't think I would have ever done that a couple of years, like before jiu-jitsu. So I'm in a much more calm and confident spot where I know more of my worth and I know what I'm bringing to the table that I can speak in a classroom setting and tell them, hey, this is what I would do in a situation. This is how I handle things. I can mentor people a bit better. I could be on a podcast. I can have these moments at the end of my classes where I'm giving advice to a class, not just one-on-one. These are all things I would have never have been doing at one point. So for me, Jiu-Jitsu brought out this confidence slowly. It didn't come naturally. It didn't come quickly. It was something that was slowly built day in and day out. And I got to a place where I was like, I'm more sure-footed of who I am, why I'm doing the things that I'm doing, and that there's value and merit in it. Not just I'm throwing things at a wall and hoping they, they work in a sense. The other thing that it gave me was this sense of community. Like before I got into jiu-jitsu, I was uh, 30 years old. I was heavy. Um, I wasn't very social. I was playing a lot of video games at home. And I got out and I started going to a few classes. I started uh, going to competitions, competing. And now there's a community outside of the home for me that I value among almost like family. And I don't like using that word because sometimes people use it kind of in an almost uh, an abusive way of pulling you in a sense. But for me, it feels much like family in the sense that I can be honest with them. They can be honest with me. We can have conversations. We help each other. If I'm having a hard time, I can go to someone for advice. They come to me for advice. So that, that community sense was so massive for me and getting over a lot of the things that I was trying to get over. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, how jujitsu has this ability for a lot of people to act as that third place. You know, this is a term I've heard where people will say, you know, your home is your first place, your place of work is your second, but you need a third place in your life, a place where you can socialize, where you can network, where you can blow off steam. And for so many of us, that place is going to be jujitsu. You know, other than being at home and being at work, there's not that many places where I spend a lot of time. The only other place I spend any measurable amount of time at is jujitsu. And not having that place in your life can make things very difficult. So for me, that's one of the reasons I came to love jujitsu is it gave me this outlet. It was way more engaging for me than just going to the gym. And like you said, it's got that ability to draw you into the present moment and help you leave your troubles at the door. This is something I've heard a lot of instructors talk about in the past, which is that when you come to jujitsu, you leave the real world at the door for an hour or however long you're there. And I think for a lot of people, that ability to shut off and just enjoy the moment and leave everything else behind them is part of what makes it so appealing. 
Completely agree. Um, meditative. I, I've never been really been able to get into meditation, but this is potentially the closest thing for me where I just can be in the moment and not have these weird concerns of like for me, for example, when I'm having a conversation with someone, my mind is racing to the next point in terms of what are they going to say next when I say this? Will they take this the wrong way? It's, so it's all constantly playing these scenarios every day, all day. So when I'm at jujitsu, yes, we're still battling scenarios, but the scenarios don't really, they're not as concerning. I can be immediately in the moment and I'm feeling, I could sometimes just close my eyes and I literally don't have to really think. I can just feel and anticipate a movement, uh, respond to a movement. In some ways, it feels like a dance, a very rhythmic dance, and I can just be. And that part is, is so massive for me, especially early on. Yeah, absolutely. Now, do you think that that changes as you mature in the sport and as you put more time in? I, mean, I have definitely noticed that the way I felt about the sport and the way I interacted with the sport when I was a white belt is very different from now. Um, has your relationship with the sport changed as you've put more time onto the mats? And has that kind of changed how uh, you benefit from it or any disadvantages you possibly get out of it? I'm just curious to know if the relationship has grown or evolved over time. I think the relation's grown in the sense that I've grown into more of a leadership position. Uh, the jiu-jitsu itself or the active rolling feels, I would say maybe calmer, if anything. Because when you're a white belt, you're really spastic and you're concerned about everything. At black belt, I am very, like, I'm not concerned as much. But it has, my relationship with jiu-jitsu has changed in the sense that I'm more cautious of how I am displaying jujitsu for other people. I understand that if I'm short-tempered with someone, if I don't say hi, if I don't convey the necessary details when I'm teaching, like all these things are super important. And I'm more cautious of how I'm demonstrating jujitsu, whether I'm teaching or I'm just, for example, sitting on the mat. Do I, I don't want to appear like you can't approach me. So in that sense, uh, it's grown there for me, where I just have to take more of that in. I have to be more conscious of that. Yeah, I love that idea of just assuming a, a natural leadership position as you train longer. Um, something I've talked about here on the podcast before is once you get that black belt, as silly as it is, people will look at you differently. Um, they'll look to you for, for answers and for guidance, not just in terms of how to improve their technique, but they will look to the ranking people in the gym for cues on behavior. So whether you want to be a leader or not, once you get up to black belt, there's going to be people who look up to you and who follow your example. So Correct. I agree with you. I've, I've also noticed the same as I have put more time on the mats and more time into the sport. My focus evolves from what's my individual performance um, that becomes less of a concern and more towards how am I contributing back to this thing? How am I representing the art? What are people going to think of, of me and of jujitsu by looking at what I do as an example? Completely. Uh, I recently promoted some, some of my Dawnbreakers, the 5am group at Gracie La Mesa. And one of the things that I said at the end of the class was, because I, I promoted four purples and one brown. And for me, I 
as I approach and I'm looking at the leadership portion, I understand that it, it's required the junior leadership to kind of step in as well. So one of the things that I had mentioned to them was when you get to Purple Belt, you're not necessarily a full-on leader, but you're more like a lead in some departments. You're someone that has experience. People, the white belts are going to look at you like you, you're a magician sometimes. Uh, they're going to be eyeing you. They're going to be looking at how you're conducting yourself. So you have to keep that in mind. And then to the brown belt, I told him, you're now a leader here. Whether you want to accept that role or not, it's on you now. Just from being a brown belt, people are going to look at you. They're going to start asking you questions. It's going to feel different from the rest of your life once you step on the mat. Yesterday, you were purple belt. Uh, they may have asked you questions. They may not have. But now that you're at Brown, it just sort of happens. So I want my students to understand that aspect from purple on so that when they get to black, it's not this uh, stark difference of, oh, I, I'm a leader now. Like, I, I don't know how to take this. I want them to get into it gradually. Yeah, I think that's also another great benefit to jujitsu over the long term if you stick around which is that you do eventually get that leadership and mentorship experience. It's something you often don't think about when you come into jiu-jitsu. You think you're just here to train martial arts, but jiu-jitsu in a lot of ways is like a microcosm of the rest of your life. There's a lot of lessons you can draw from jiu-jitsu into the other things that you do, like your work and how you engage with your family. Um, I never would have believed that if you told me this when I started this art, I would have thought you were some like Sun Tzu loving weirdo <laughs> who thought that, you know, everything came back to the martial arts. Cause I, I remember this. I remember when I started jujitsu and I, you know, I'd see all of these business people quoting the art of war. And I, I think you people are just <laughs> idiots. You know, you're not, you're not gonna, you're not gonna be able to pull any lessons from the martial arts into real life. That doesn't make any sense, but you know, here we are, and I now I'm running this freaking podcast that's all about the intersection between jujitsu and, and the real world. And there's no denying that for a lot of people, this is going to be their best education to how to run a group, how to be a leader. Um, you might not get this stuff in school. You might not get the stuff in your job, depending on what you do. But you come to jujitsu and you hang around long enough to move up the ranks and people will start to look up to you. And that that can be an amazing opportunity for giving people purpose once they stay around past blue belt. Right. You know, people talk about the blue belt blues a lot and that sucks for sure. But if you stick around long enough and you get to that point where people are looking up to you and depending on you to help them, it feels really good, man. <laughs> I mean, it feels really good. It's incredibly rewarding, um, especially for someone who like me, I didn't necessarily I don't have the most glamorous job. I'm in more of a leadership position at, at work, but it's not necessarily rewarding like this is. Additionally, I don't have kids, so I don't have that aspect either. So this aspect, this third place, if you will, took all that over in a sense, and it gave me a lot of purpose, which I'm incredibly thankful and indebted to. Yeah. So here's a question for you, because we're talking about using jujitsu as a vehicle for overcoming trauma. How do you onboard people in this situation? I mean, a lot of people are going to walk into your gym, like you said, because they have, they've come from a traumatic background and they've made the decision that this might be an avenue that they can use to, um, to improve themselves and to help overcome that. But what about for people who maybe have never heard of jujitsu? Is this something that you think should be marketed and advertised, or is it better to let people kind of identify and figure it out on their own? So that's an interesting question in that it kind of is already advertised 
in that sense, because we're discussing when you go to a gym, you're not necessarily looking, hey, I'm going to go compete. So when you see an advertisement for a gym, when you see a gym billboard or a sign and you walk by or you drive up, you're in essence thinking martial art, which is self-defense, which is anti-bullying, self-improvement. So I think they're already tied into that marketing aspect. Personally, I think that we need to do a better job of preparing instructors and junior leaders to process students maybe a little bit better. And in that, I mean, so often we receive customers or potential clients or students in, and we don't think of why they're there necessarily. We might ask them, hey, how'd you hear of us? And they'll tell you, uh, I saw the sign, I saw a post, I have a friend that may have been doing jujitsu. But you don't really get into the nitty gritty of why they might be there. And you probably shouldn't. It's there. It's a lot of personal information. It's personal emotions that you may not want to get into. But as an instructor or a gym owner, you should at least prepare your students and your instructors to accept new clients as if they were coming to you for something deeper. And instead of, hey, do you want to sign up? Okay, here, here, sign here, trial class. And then just kind of throw them into the deep end, which sometimes happens at a lot of schools. We should really have a fundamentals program. We could have these little small pools that they get and get into. So it's not such an impact when they get on the mats. It's more of, oh, I'm into this little group. We're all kind of beginners. We're not trying to kill each other. Okay, this feels better for me. Sometimes that when we get thrown into the deep end, especially as someone who's trying to recover from something, it's just too much. And we don't know how to, uh, how to respond to it. The other side of this is just having great customer service. Talk to people respectfully. Have an environment that feels relaxed. I think sometimes you can enter a gym and it feels tense. And when it feels tense, that's not an environment that I want to step into or someone who is trying to get over domestic violence wants to step into because they already have that. They don't want to feel tense. Now, training could be tense or intense. That's different. But the environment, for me at least, when you step into a class that I'm teaching, it's very relaxed. I'm not heavy on, oh, you're late. Tell me why you, you're late. I'm not heavy on wait on the edge of the mat before you come in. Like, I, I feel like we're all adults and these people are paying me for jiu-jitsu lessons and that's what I'm giving them. I'm giving them a, an environment in which they can come in, feel relaxed enough to understand material, understand where we might be going, the scenarios, be comfortable enough to ask questions. Like, how many gyms do we enter where it's just so tense that people don't feel comfortable asking? Like, that's huge. Just that alone. Yeah, I am really happy that you brought that up. This is something that I've been noodling on for a while. Uh, just this idea that the way that we onboard people in jujitsu is maybe suboptimal. Uh, we've had a lot of people on this podcast talk about advice for how to make your gym more welcoming and how to improve your um, your student uptake, get more people signed up. And the big thing that a lot of instructors bring up on this podcast is 
Well, have you made your place welcoming and inviting? It's the little things, right? If, if for example, you want to get more women training at your gym, do you have a dedicated women's locker room? There's a lot of instructors out there who will say, man, I don't know why there are no women who come and sign up at my gym. Well, little things like that, right? How did you yeah. present your gym on your website and in your marketing? If it's just all dudes holding gold medals, even if it wasn't your intent, you're kind of sending a signal about the type of audience you want. And so I think that that initial stage of onboarding your new customers is something that instructors don't think enough about. You know, it's easy to, to lose track of this as you've been training for years and years and years. But man, for most people, showing up to jujitsu on their first class is going to be one of the scariest things they ever do in their life. It, it is very intimidating. And I think that we all too easily forget how scary that was. I remember being terrified. I had never done martial arts before. I had no idea what I was walking into. I showed up to this room. You know, the coach didn't seem to particularly care. There was a room full of people trying to kill each other. I didn't know any of the <laughs> techniques they were doing. And then they just fucking threw me in there and some blue belt just had his way with me, right? Luckily, I was really stubborn and had already made up my mind at that time that I was going to do jujitsu no matter what. But if I had come in um, as the, uh, you know, someone trying to recover from violence or PTSD or other trauma, I'm not sure that experience would have gone so well for me. Probably and not. Yeah, exactly. And I do worry sometimes that by not being uh, a bit more intelligent with our onboarding of new customers, we run the potential of losing those people are actually making their trauma even worse, right? That's something we have to worry about too. And that also goes back to just, there's the onboarding aspect. Maybe you don't have the space for maybe a, a strict fundamentals program. Some gyms have small spaces. They don't have like dual space mats or they don't have enough time in the day to actually put that in there. The other aspect of this that you can do is create a culture where the people who are raising in ranks also understand the importance of introducing new people to jiu-jitsu in a more calm and respectful manner opposed to hey this blue belt sees trial guy come in and now he wants to wreck trial guy like that's not beneficial either yeah that's actually a good point um especially at blue belt you probably don't yet have so much confidence in your technique and in yourself frankly that you're willing to put on the kid gloves with the new person. But as a black belt, this is something you have to be very mindful of. Um, you have to kind of turn the intensity down and see what the other person is going to do first if they're a first timer, because you know how scared they are. You know they don't know what to do. And so I find when I'm in there with those people, I often, I kind of let them start and, and get the role going because I don't want to put them on the defensive right out of the gate, right? Correct. It's a very different, yeah, it's a very different way that you roll with a first timer versus even someone who's been rolling for a month and at least understands what the, what the purpose of this martial art actually is. Uh, whenever I have new people come in, one of the things that I end up doing is I'll roll with them. And I know at some gyms, that's kind of like an alien concept, black belt rolling with the new guy. But I feel like if I can roll with them, one, they can see that it doesn't have to be so intense. They can see the proper ways of rolling. I can gauge where they're coming from. So I may not pair this guy that came in, he's ultra aggressive, young, maybe he wrestled and I can feel it. I may not pair him up with the 115 pound person who started three weeks ago. So then I'm better at pairing them together or I pair them up with someone that I know will also guide them down that path. So if someone comes in and they're 
they seem a little unsure of themselves. Like you said, you were completely lost when you first started. I was the same way. It was great to have someone step in and roll with you who just kind of took care of you. And, oh, this doesn't sound so, so bad. Like, okay, so I'm in bottom. I'm not getting beat up. I'm losing, quote unquote, but I'm not getting beat up. Then you start getting confident. But that only comes when you kind of pair people up correctly. So I don't normally pair people up in my classes. I generally do that only when I know there's just someone completely new. And I make sure that they're okay. That's my first priority. I want you to stay. I don't want to be the reason that you quit jujitsu. So I want your experiences to be well-intended, safe, and encouraging. So when you leave, you feel good about yourself and the experience. Yeah, I think that is something that is not thought enough about, which is the customer experience for the first day. How are people going to leave and think about and reflect on that experience? Is it positive to the point where they're going to want to come back? Some people, if you present them with a first class that's full of adversity and you just beat their ass, right? They might say, man, this, this martial art is awesome. I'd love more of this. But for, I would say, most people, that is probably not going to be a winning approach that's going to get you customers. And it's interesting because this is kind of the opposite of how we often think about this martial art. There's a lot of talk about iron sharpens iron and growing from discomfort. I mean, we talk about that a, lo a lot on this podcast, right? That to grow, you have to go outside of your comfort zone. I don't think many people would uh, would argue that. But the problem is you have to do that at a particular pace. If someone is coming in and they're overcoming some sort of trauma and they're already terrified of trying this new thing, just going, you know, nuts and trying to tap them a hundred times on the first day, that's more, <laughs> that's more resistance and discomfort than is probably merited for that first timer, right? They're still in that feeling out phase. And I worry sometimes that by making things so combative and trying to, you know, create diamonds out of pressure, I worry that sometimes we turn off a lot of the students who would really benefit from this martial art. Uh, something that I've, I've said on the podcast before is, I mean, how many potentially amazing jujitsu world champions and teachers could have existed if not for the fact that something happened when they were a white belt that turned them off the sport and they left, right? I mean, there's probably alternate timelines where a lot of people who abandoned jujitsu because they had a bad experience, they could have gone on to see life-changing benefits. Um, and so I think as instructors, we do have to think about how we put our first foot forward when we bring these people into the mats and how we, how do we impress upon them the good side of jujitsu without giving them too many things that would make them want to leave. Completely agree. So taking it back, uh, before I got my black belt, I was, I think my second year at Brown, I knew black was coming around the corner. Personally, I was about to get promoted at work and I was going to be supervising some people. And what I ended up doing was I ended up taking classes online for leadership. I started listening to people who were in the leadership sphere on YouTube. I started listening to audiobooks on the topic, various things when it came to how to make people trust you, how to get them to do things they don't think they can do. So I did all that in preparation for that black belt promotion and that promotion that I had on the civilian side. And I did that in mind because I wanted to create an environment for that first timer that comes in. But I also wanted to create an environment for the people that were just already there. And I have seen environments where 
sometimes they're tense. Sometimes uh, the instructor can be a bit harsh in critiquing techniques. And if that had been me when I was a white belt or blue belt, I don't know how I would have handled the intense scrutiny of my mistake. I don't know how I would have handled maybe competing and having my coach kind of go down my throat about a mistake I made in competition. I don't know how I would have handled those things as a white or blue belt if they had been presented to me. So I'm very cautious of the overall experience where I don't want people to feel like, hey, I'm going to hammer them for forgetting details. One of the things sometimes with trauma victims, they come in and they're not always there mentally. Sometimes they're preoccupied with other thoughts. Uh, something happened that day. A spouse acted up. They had an argument. And they'll come in and you can look at them and completely see that they're, they're not there. But they wanted to come to jiu-jitsu. They wanted to come to your class. So my objective at that point is I'm just happy they came. I'm not harping on any mistakes they make. I'm not harping on the fact that they maybe sat out during a round when they could have been rolling. Like I, it's not for me to judge. So I am just excited and happy that in their most difficult stage in that week, that day, they came to class and maybe they weren't all there, but they were there just to be there and learn. And sometimes that's the win of the day. And you're just happy to do that. I've had students that come in and and maybe they bring their kids and their kids are fussy and but they want to train i could be uh, the kind of instructor that hey you, you kids aren't allowed here or they're too being too loud or they're this or that can you take them home instead i just watched them so i held one and i made sure the other one wasn't, wasn't fussy and they got to go roll which is what they needed that day they had a terrible day so then they get to roll and get some of the anguish out but Sometimes we want to be lords of the mat opposed to shepherds of the flock. And that's a completely different mindset. And it's required you to understand that they're going to have difficulties. They're not going to get everything. Some days it's going to be a bad day learning, training, but they're just happy to be there with you. Take that win. That's huge. That is an amazing insight. I am so happy that you brought that up. I feel sometimes like gyms do dumb things that will uh, discourage people from coming into the gym. I mean, the common example is um, if you show up late, you have to do burpees or something. That That's a real dumb idea to have people yeah, no, do. Thank you. Because, yeah, all, all you're doing is you're discouraging people from coming if something happens that forces them to be late. And look, I mean, I'm sorry, a lot of us have real jobs. You know, sometimes we can't make it to jujitsu at exactly the start time because of, you know, maybe we're commuting in from work. Maybe we've got to pick up our kid. Um, and punishing people for that is just a, it's just going to turn them off and discourage them from coming. And it's not even that you're making them do the burpees. It's that you're singling them out and you're basically punishing them for something. Uh, you're kind of setting the tone wrong right out of the gate. Correct. Yeah, yeah. We've had a lot of people on the podcast. Uh, Stefan Kesting, for example, has talked about this. We have a series on our premium service with uh, Nick Perler, one of the top wrestling coaches in America. And something that they've talked about is the importance of just the consistency of showing up, because there will always be those days where you don't want to show up. And 
you have to give yourself permission to to be okay with that. But what both Nick and Stefan had said is, look, keep the habit going. If you have one of those off days where you just don't feel like you want to go there, show up anyway. Like uh, something that uh, Nick Perler brought up has said, okay, if you've got the flu, for example, are you going to train? No, of course not, because you don't want to get your friend sick. But at least like drive to the gym, park the car, open the car door, get out, get back into the car door, go home. Like at least keep the routine going. Um, I know Stefan Kesting again has said the same thing where he's talked about how on those bad days where he doesn't want to train, he makes a promise to himself that, look, okay, I'm just going to go. I'm just going to go. I'm going to sit there for 10 minutes. And if I'm still not feeling it, I'm going to give myself permission to go home. But at least I went, right? At least I did that. I kept the habit going. I kept the routine going. And the flip side of all of this is if you're the instructor, the last thing you want to do is throw up things that would discourage your students from keeping the routine going. Anything that's going to punish them for showing up, anything that's going to make them feel awkward or make them feel uncomfortable, as a business owner, you need to understand you are discouraging people from getting the potential benefit of your service if you put up those barriers. So I would just want to hear your thoughts on that. And if you also see instructors making any similar mistakes like we just described. Uh, yes. Uh, the uh, One that's very common is the you stand on the edge of the mat before you come on. I understand it's more of a traditional thing. We come from a traditional school, so you, you might see that. But sometimes it feels to me like almost like being treated like a child. And in my class, they'll stand on the edge and I'm like, you don't have to wait, just get on the mat. Like, I, I don't want to take time away from what I'm already doing to go look at you and then wave you on. There's no need for that. You're an adult. I'm an adult. You were late for whatever reason. I personally don't care. I'm just happy you're here. Some of the other things that I sometimes see is not asking uh, higher belts to roll. I think that's a little silly. You can always just politely say no. Um, I don't have a problem with my students, white belt, whatever belt, asking, hey, do you want to roll? I'm perfect. I'm, I never say no. I just go and we roll and I am the instructor I'm supposed to be. But I just, sometimes we put these hurdles in and I don't know if they're always based on because we have tradition or because we have a sense of inflated ego. I don't know. But what I do feel is that we need to take away some of these hurdles because every time we put a hurdle up is another reason for someone, like you said, not to come to class. So if someone's already having a bad day, they had an argument in this topic, they had an argument with a spouse or ex-spouse or whatever, I don't want to make another hurdle for them. I don't want them to think, I just had this terrible day, I'm going to jiu-jitsu, I'm late, I have to do burpees, he's going to talk to me about being late. He's going to talk to me about like, I don't want any of that. I don't even want my students to apologize for it. Like, you, there's no sense in apologizing for being late. There's no sense of apologizing for any of it. I, it doesn't matter to me. Like, I'm just happy you're there. Come train. That's it. So I think sometimes we just we create these hurdles. And I don't know if it's because ego, tradition, or if we're just not thinking outside the box. And we're just, we were taught a certain way. And that's just what we're going to end up doing. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's a tricky one. I agree with you. There's a lot of things that instructors probably are doing without realizing it that turns people off unnecessarily. Um, I'm personally not a fan of anything that punishes a new student for being new. The example I have brought up many times on this podcast is lining up by rank. Um, I'm very wary of doing that because 
It doesn't really serve any purpose other than to glorify the people who have been around longest. And the problem with making your students line up by rank is the day one white belt is going to have no idea that that's a thing. So I've seen this so many times where everyone lines up. The white belt doesn't know that you're supposed to line up by rank. The instructor has to stop, call them out, and make them basically do the walk <laughs> of shame to the other side of the room. Like, what are, you, what are you doing? I mean, this doesn't achieve anything. It doesn't help your business. It doesn't help your other students. All it does is single out your one new customer and make them look like an idiot in front of everyone, right? They're probably already nervous as all hell. You just made it a hundred times worse. So a lot of those little rituals, and like you said, the one about, you know, waiting to be called onto the mat. Any gym that makes you, you know, ask for permission to go to the bathroom for crying out loud, like there's a lot of things that I think we need to consider loosening up in the jujitsu space because they probably have a, a greater impact on our customers than we would expect. Completely agree. And part of that, well, the bathroom, that's just ridiculous. Just go. You don't have to ask me. We're not in, you're not a school kid. Uh, but the, the rank one, lining up in according to rank, I think that could be measured out by having a credible onboarding system where you say, hey, these are some of the rules, just heads up. When you come on, because you're lower rank, you can be on the left side or the right side or whatever it might be. So some of that can at least be corrected with proper onboarding. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Jeff Shaw from Bellingham BJJ has talked about this quite a bit. And by the way, if anyone needs a uh, good onboarding package for their gym, talk to Jeff Shaw because he's kind of built out this whole thing. But not many gyms do this where they provide people with information about what they're getting into. I mean, I'm not a gym owner, but if I were, one of the first things that I would consider doing is recording like a quick five minute what to expect video <laughs> and sending it to all of my new customers before they come in just so that they know what they're getting into. You know, many people will get into this martial art because they saw it in the UFC. And so they'll at least have a cursory understanding of what jujitsu is. But a lot of people have no clue. You know, maybe they have a friend or a relative who told them that jujitsu is good for self-defense. So they, they showed up. A lot of people come to jujitsu in their first class and they don't realize it's grappling. They think it's striking or something. And they're very surprised when someone winds up sitting on top of them and smothering them on the floor. That's not an experience that some people understand they're getting into. And I think that with good onboarding and preparing people, you can make that awkwardness a lot easier to deal with. Imagine if you were a victim of domestic violence and you weren't quite sure. And then you get on here and you have someone on top of you probably not a great experience. Well, I would go beyond not a great experience to potentially a very damaging experience. Correct. I think instructors sometimes don't realize the power that they have um, and the impact that uh, both positive and negative experiences can have in their gym. Um, you take someone who's gotten into jujitsu because they're already struggling and then you put them in a shock situation like that and you can make things a hundred times worse for them. Um, and I'm glad you brought this up because I actually wanted to ask your opinion on this. Is there a point where maybe jujitsu isn't the right thing for you? Is there a point where, depending on the nature of the trauma that you're coming in here with, maybe you should reconsider? And, and I bring this up because I have talked to people like this. Um, I have a friend who has said that she would never try jujitsu because as the survivor of violence herself, it, the the sport is too close to the trauma for her. And she said she can't do it. And so interestingly, she did not say, I won't do it. She said, I can't do it. And so I'd want to explore this with you. Is, is there a point where for a at a certain level or for a certain type of trauma, maybe jujitsu isn't the right thing, or maybe there needs to be special precautions taken to ease you in? 
Or do you feel that this is a solution that truly can benefit everyone? I think ultimately it can benefit everyone that is willing to attempt it or try it. I do understand that some traumas or experiences are very linked into positions that we train in. So I can see how someone is not ready for that at all and may never be accepting of it. One thing that I would recommend is if you're considering it, maybe you don't roll. Maybe you don't drill for the early part. Maybe we just assign you a gi and you watch. Maybe you only watch with a woman or only drill with a woman or only drill with the instructor. Whatever the comfort level is of that student is what we should probably uh, narrow in on. And one of the things that I, I kind of quote often is meeting your students where they are. And sometimes some instructors don't want to move towards their student because it's an ego thing. My belief is whatever my student needs is what I need to give them. And sometimes I have to accept it. All they're going to do is kind of watch. Perfectly fine. I'll sit with them. We'll talk. I'll point out positions. I'll point out why certain things are happening. And then when they feel comfortable, I'll ask, hey, do you want to roll or do you want to drill or can I get you a partner that I think you would be comfortable with? Do you want to pick out your partner? That goes a long way. So the measuring of progress really has to be on the student and we can't shove them forward. We can't be the gatekeepers of like, let's make this as uncomfortable for everyone and see who lasts. Like that's unbeneficial. I have to meet them wherever they are. Yeah, that's a great point and something I, I think people need to emphasize a lot when they're thinking about how they onboard their students. I mean, there will be some people who they come in and they say, nope, you know what, I'm good to go. I've done sports all my life. Doesn't bother me. Go ahead and choke me. I don't mind, right? That's awesome. But not everyone's going to be that way. And a concern that I have is that instructors, I know many instructors are worried about um, watering down the art, right? Jiu-jitsu is, it works because it works. You know, it, it, it's proven to work. There's There's pressure involved. It's pressure tested. That's why it works. And I know that there is a fear that by watering down the art or by taking it easy on students, we're going to, you know, wimpify the sport <laughs> and, and, yeah. and jujitsu will become watered down and ineffective. So a lot of instructors think, well, you know, I, I don't want to put kid gloves on to deal with people. Um, but the thing that I think jujitsu instructors need to understand is the type of people walking into your gym are not going to, this is not representative of the, the population at large you're going to get a very different type of person who walks into a jiu-jitsu gym versus the average person you'd meet on the street. People are coming here for a reason, and there's a, a whole bunch of reasons those could be. Could be because they love sport, could be because they want to defend themselves, could also be because they're overcoming trauma. Uh, and the other thing that I think jiu-jitsu gym owners need to understand is jiu-jitsu as an experience is not the same as a lot of other experiences out there. Um, It is a much more intimate and personal and stressful experience to grapple with someone than it is to sit next to them at a restaurant or something, right? As a jiu-jitsu owner or gym owner, you have to have a, a, a standard that I think is a little bit higher and different from maybe other business owners. You need to understand that the product that you're offering, it may have side effects. And you need to take those into account. Uh, so I love this idea that you've brought up here about gently onboarding people. 
Do you have a policy or do you recommend a policy where rolling is prohibited up until a certain point? Because I know some gyms do this where they will say no rolling until you're a two-stripe white belt or something. Other gyms will disagree with that practice, but I would want to hear where you land on this. I do not. Um, I think that I'm going to leave it up to the student. If a student comes in and they read just, I am not for rolling right now, then by all means, we can watch. We can, I, I can discuss things with you. If I don't have to actually roll because we have adequate students on board, then maybe I have them drill with me and we drill escapes and we drill uh, the technique that we did that day. But I, I don't think that we should necessarily hold people back the same way that I want to gently onboard someone who's having difficulties. I don't want to hold anyone back from getting the experience that they want. So you might have someone that comes in, hey, I'm eager. As long as I understand they're going to be safe, then I'll let them roll. Or I'll be careful in who they roll with. But I don't think that holding people back to, what would that be, like six, seven months, eight months? I don't think that's necessarily great for them either. That's a terrible experience. Imagine if I could not have rolled for the first six months. Like, I would have hated it. I don't know if I would have stayed. Yeah, I think you're right there. I think it just comes down to a personal comfort level. People are ready when they're ready. I would say that if someone is comfortable being put in that situation, they have a cursory understanding of at least how to keep themselves safe and what the purpose of the sport is, and they really want to do it, then I think, yeah, it's time for them to start going. And that might vary from person to person. For some person, it might be on their second class. For someone else, it might be five months from now. Um, something that I do know with jujitsu is, you know, we tend to have a, a very demo centric understanding of what jujitsu is like. The, the majority of people who are going to get into jujitsu for the long haul, it feels like it's really young men and increasingly young women as well. But look, you know, it's a very different experience if you walk into jujitsu for the first time and you're 50 years old or you've got some sort of health conditions or you know, you've never done something like this in your life. It's a very different situation than if you're a 20-year-old who's got athletic experience and isn't really thinking too much about this. So everyone's journey through this is going to be different. Their comfort level, their risk tolerance is going to be different. And I love this idea that you've prescribed about just letting people choose on their own and helping them get comfortable. Yeah, that goes back to meeting your student where they are. I may want them to go maybe a little faster because so, there are students that don't have the confidence to do certain things. And I have a few where I have to kind of like have discussions with them and I, I think they could do more, but I'm not shoving them forward. It, it, it's detrimental to who they are, but you kind of encourage them. I will have discussions with them, quick discussions after class, or I'll send them the IM encouraging them. Hey, I, you did really good with this, this, and this. I noticed that you were kind of hesitant with these aspects. I want you to be a little more aggressive and they'll take to it and they'll understand. And, and because it's in a private nurturing environment, they, they don't have an issue with it. It really becomes a problem when we just, we're trying to force an act that they're not comfortable with. And that's when we're no longer servicing them and we're almost servicing our own egos, our own well-being, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. I've never understood why instructors will just bark at the new person, you know, when they're stuck in the bottom, just hip bump, just hip escape to get out of there. 
look, if the person could do that and it would work, they would have done that already. <laughs> the problem is they're not experienced enough to know how to do that properly. It's not as easy as just doing a hip bump to get out from underneath someone. There's a lot of factors that come into play there. You need to know predictably how a person's going to respond. You need to be able to chain sequences together. If I just grab some random person and teach them how to do a hip bump, it's probably not going to work against a good opponent. So I never understood why instructors will just sit there and scream at their white belts, you know, barking orders, whether they're they're getting just smashed by someone more experienced than them. It, It doesn't really help at that point. I think, like you said, you need to meet people where they are and understand that it's hard for a new person to just absorb everything their instructor is telling them. You learn these things incrementally and through baby steps. And I think that, again, if you understand the level that a person's at and give them feedback relative to that level, that's much more helpful than just barking at them because they can't do everything right the first time. A large part of that is having the emotional intelligence to understand that. And sometimes we don't. Like this is such a male aggressive art that sometimes just apply force. And But I'm not comfortable applying force. And you're not understanding that I am not comfortable doing the force For example, I was talking to someone recently and they had expressed, not a student of mine, but they had expressed that they kind of broke down when they were doing self-defense striking and it drove her back to the PTSD of a domestic violence situation. Some instructors won't understand that connection. They may not even know that there is a connection. They'll just see that there's a student that doesn't want to do something. And they'll bark orders or they'll yell or they'll may not even yell, but they'll have an expression that says, I'm displeased with you instead of having some compassion and be like, okay, if you want to sit out for this, it's okay. Like, again, having the emotional intelligence to understand that something's going on here that isn't necessarily based around you or the class. I need to do something about this. Maybe ask questions if they feel comfortable answering them. If All you do is, hey, I understand you're, for whatever reason, you don't feel quite comfortable. Do you want to sit? That goes a long way. Like, but anything over the top just kind of turns someone off and they may not want to come back, even if they're experienced and they've been with you for a while. Yeah, yeah. Now, the other thing you talked about too, which I think is tremendously valuable, is the instructor follow-up. Uh, where you check in with someone after the class. You maybe ask them how things went. You give them specific targeted attention and feedback. Talk a little bit about why that's so useful, because this is an area where I think most instructors could probably dramatically improve uh, their success rate with students if they just did some individual follow-ups with everyone. But tell me a little bit about how that approach works. So one, I have an environment where it's super relaxed. I'm not nitpicking. And we have a Q&A at the end of class. So most of my students have become comfortable asking questions. That was huge. When I started that, everyone was really hesitant. So what I had to do on top of the Q&A was send out an IM. If I understood that a student had a really bad time in a situation, but I also understand they don't like being put on the spot, then I don't bring it up at the end of class, especially if I'm trying to point it out to them specifically. I might send them an IM, hey, you were doing great in these two categories. I noticed you struggled when you got bottom of a mount. You kind of like extended your arms and it led to an arm bar. 
here's what I would like you to start doing. And I'll send a, a link to a YouTube video. And it's like, you know, keep this framing. This is huge. This will be beneficial for you. And then I catch up a week or two later. Hey, how are things? Or if I haven't seen a student in a while, I haven't seen them in a couple of weeks. I have, we have, uh, it's a military town here. So we have a lot of people that go on deployment or they go to the field and sometimes they're just in and out and they don't explain it. Why? They're just, that's just the life they live. So I reach out, Hey, hope everything's okay. How are things? And they'll tell me, yeah, I was on deployment or I got called to the field or I had a class to teach or I just, Hey, I got an injury. I was like, Oh, I had no idea what's going on. And then you kind of just talk to them. And that one-on-one where you're reaching out to them for whatever reason is a massive connection builder. It shows that you actually care outside of what you're being paid for, which is the actual physical class. So when I go out of my way to check in on the student, they remember it. They, it's, it's like, oh, yeah, he actually cares. And I didn't always get that everywhere I went. I had instructors that were like that, and I had some that just weren't. Maybe they were too busy. Maybe it wasn't in the warehouse. I don't know. But for me, it's been a huge assist in creating the environment that I've wanted for this class. And the numbers continue to grow, I think, in large part because I do that. Yeah, I think that a little bit of specific attention from the instructor goes a long way. Instructors often don't understand or realize what an impact it can make if they take the time to reach out to a student and show that they care and that they are paying attention and that they want the best for the student. That's how you go beyond just having this customer slash business relationship and actually creating a long-term connection with someone. And as an instructor, honestly, your ability to do that and to build those connections is going to be way, way more important over the long term than how well you can teach arm bars. So this is an area where I think Our instructors probably aren't really equipped to do the best job that they could. We focus a lot on teaching technique, but the human side of things is ultimately the glue that holds the gym together. And if you ignore that, yeah, you you lose the opportunity to help people to the maximal amount that I think you otherwise could. Completely agree. And it goes both ways. Like as a black belt, I started realizing that people were like, I don't want to say hanging on every word, but they took your words to mean so much more than any rank that I had before. I could have said the exact same thing. As a blue belt, it wouldn't have hit them right. But as a black belt, they take that and they hold on to it, both positively and negatively. So if I come into class and I chastise someone because they did not do the technique correctly, that goes a long way too, in the opposite direction. So we have to really be conscious of what the power of our words and actions are doing for both the regular student and the trauma survivor, because it's going to hit them immensely. And for the trauma survivor, who's already sensitive to a lot of things, it's going to be even a bigger wound to try to heal if you're not careful. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, man, fantastic chat. I can't thank you enough for coming by, but I just want to check before we tie this up. David, was there anything you wanted to bring up or talk about that we didn't already discuss here? No, this was great. I would love to come back if you ever have me. I'd love to have you, man. Uh, Before we do that, though, why don't you give yourself just a quick plug? If people want to follow you or learn from you or connect with you, how do they go about doing that? On Instagram, it is DFM, David Figueroa Martinez, dot 2099. I also have a website with a bunch of blogs about much of the stuff that you kind of cover. 
also dfm2099.me. And if anyone wants to support my uh, Dawnbreakers group, I have dawnbreakersbjj.com. And the, a lot of the proceeds that I earn from there, I give back to the students and I try to cover their competition fees. So it's a small little store. It doesn't have a ton, a couple of shirts, stickers, that type of thing. But it helps me at least make it easier for them to compete when they want to compete. Fantastic. I'll put the links in the show notes as I always do. Just also wanted to ask while I've got you, David, for people who are either beginning jujitsu or are thinking of beginning jujitsu um, because of past trauma, and maybe they're hoping that jujitsu can be a solution for them. Are there any resources you would recommend to those people before they get started or maybe while they're getting started to kind of help them ease through that process? So there's a book that I'm listening to at the moment. I'm not even halfway through. But so far, it's been really good is Transforming Trauma with Jiu-Jitsu by Jamie Marich. If you can read or listen to that, that'd be huge. But a lot of this is going to be just finding a really healthy environment to get into. And that's not always easy. So when you go to these schools and you're trying them out, ask questions, take advantage of the trial period, go to as many classes as you can, even if you're only sitting in and you're not comfortable actually being part of the class, watch the environment, see how people interact with one another, see how the student interacts with the teacher and teacher with the student. That alone will go a long way. But go at your own pace. Don't be pushed into something you're not ready for. And if jujitsu isn't obviously the answer, also get professional help. Yeah, absolutely. Can't underscore that enough. Well, David, I'll put links to all of those resources in the show notes. So if people want to check out your stuff or look into that book, I'll make it easy for them. Just pop open the show notes and go there. I'll also put a link, as I always do, to bjjmentalmodels.com, which is where everything we make lives. There you can get every episode of the podcast. Um, You can sign up to our newsletter. You can go through our awesome concepts database. Tons of valuable resources there that are all completely free. If you want to go to the next level with us, that's what BJJ Mental Models Premium is for. You can get the same thing at the same site, bjjmentalmodels.com. Why would you do that? There's basically three things that Premium offers. Number one is our awesome audio course library. We've actually got at least two courses as of this recording that are specifically geared to instructors creating a positive gym culture. So if you're an instructor, if you listen to this and you want to know how could I actually do that, We've got some great guidance from uh, both Jeff Shaw from Bellingham BJJ and Kabir Bath uh, from Kaboom BJJ, both who have been on the podcast before explaining their method for doing this. Beyond that, you'll also get rolling reviews with us. If you're a premium member, send in your rolling clips and our black belt review team will break it down. And you also get to be a part of our awesome private uh, discord community, which I definitely recommend as well. There's a free trial and it helps keep the show afloat. So if you like this stuff, please do consider checking it out. It's all at bjjmentalmodels.com. Again, link will be in the show notes, though. But David, man, I've been looking forward to this one for a while. Thanks so much for coming by. Really awesome, meaningful chat. It was great to connect. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, man. And thanks to the listeners as well. Take care. We'll talk to you next week. See you soon.